Why do you have cum on your collar? Oh, I just took some cum on the collar before I got here today. You know, the communications building bathroom. <laughs> Wait, do I actually? Hello, everybody, welcome to Upper Bounds, the Daily's podcast for those tired of being boundless. I'm your co-host, Christine McFanagle. And I'm your other co-host, Kyle Nyholm. And today with us, we have Neil Trocrevardi, owner of Bleach on Vinyl, first pressing. Quite a quite an impressive feat. Also a member of the Countless Boundless. <laughs> what? And the fact about Neil and his Bleach album is actually important because... Today we are doing basically a episode on 90s counterculture music. You have grunge, if you just widen the umbrella a little, you encapsulate a lot of Seattle's music. The story begins in the sleepy town of Seattle, 1984. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a young kinda. man, Bruce Pavitt, decides to start his own grunge fanzine. Yeah, wow, so. that's actually pretty, that's, that's actually accurate. He, no, he knows. He knows. Wow, Neil's going to school us in grunge today. <laughs> Grunge cannot really be discussed without also talking about Sub Pop Records, the recording label that brought you bands such as Nirvana, Soundgarden, and Mud Honey. You might be familiar with them from the current lineup of bands such as Fleet Foxes, Foles, Beach House, The Postal Service, Flight of the Concords, Sleater Kinney, my favorite, Blitz and Trapper, Father John Misty, my favorite, Shabbos Palaces, and The Shins. Go The Shins. Those are also. Some mm-hmm. of my I think Iron and Wine's also signed to some pop. <laughs> I right think now. so. Actually, I'm a big. I, I like Iron and Wine. Is he really? <laughs> yeah, Neil's got this one right. <laughs> Iron and Wine. If you're listening to this, please hit us up with some merch. Thanks. We accept donations of all kinds, including sex, <laughs> especially monetary donations. <laughs> as much as I would like Iron and Wine to come to the studio and have sex. <laughs> <laughs> Does he have a fat beard? Yeah. <laughs> Even better. A big, that big manly bush. More to grab onto. <laughs> Is that a thing, like riding somebody and holding onto their beard? <laughs> I can't share this on Facebook anymore. <laughs> and so this started while the co-founder, like Neil said, Bruce Pavitt, was attending classes at Evergreen State College, the college for those who are pretty much fucked up, but kind of brilliant <laughs> as well. <laughs> To be honest, weird shit comes out of Evergreen. My cousin went there. Strange so. stuff happens in the middle of nowhere. Guess she falls yeah. into that. Uh, what, 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 am I accurate? What were what, what the, the adjectives you used again? Basically, the land of fucked up people who are slightly genius in certain areas. Washington. Idiot savants? It, yeah, that's the, that's the better word. That's, that's the, the clinical the, term for people. Who I mean, it's like Evergreen. you take idiot savant and you throw in a little bit of just like communism, a little bit of just tree-hugging. Then you got Evergreen State College. And so he basically started an amateur fanzine and soon started sending out compilation tapes of underground rock bands to subscribers. And he moved to Seattle in 1983. So you were very close. You said 84. It's 83. 83. Yeah. But in 86... We gotta go re-record the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) But in 86, he released the first sub-pop LP, which was a compilation. 
Green River, one of the pioneers of the grunge sound, released their Dry as Bone EP on the label, promoting an ultra-loose grunge that, grunge. <laughs> that destroyed the morals of a generation. And this, as far as I know, is the first real use of grunge as a label of the genre. It had been used a few times before to describe different music, but never as a label for a genre, just mm. kind of as an adjective. So, really blazing the trails here. And I mean, before that Sub Pop 100 record that you were talking about came out, I think that was 1986 or so. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the, the Deep Six album, which is a similar compilation thing. Basically, I mean, a glorified mixtape put on like nice vinyl and everything. You didn't, you didn't have grunge music on any vinyl. Like you had some, some extended plays here and there by a couple of artists, but really none of the grunge artists had that great production value that you get with a, a widespread vinyl release and these two albums were really big for kind of i mean i know soundgarden i know was on deep six it was also on sub pop 100 you also had bands like the melvins which a lot of people haven't heard of but within grunge they're a pretty big deal and you had some smaller bands too like Skin Yard and Malfunction. You know, these are some big names all together and they're all having their first release, major release on vinyl together, which was pretty cool, all around the same time. And then a couple years later, uh, after the Sub Pop 100, you had the second Sub Pop 200 compilation record. I think that was 1988. And that was, that was the first one, the first Sub Pop release to have Nirvana on it. And it had one spank through one of their earliest, earliest big songs. Do you go to Evergreen State College? <laughs> Can we put them on Jeopardy? This is actually really impressive. We should just let you talk for the entire time. <laughs> Soundgarden released a single and an EP on the label thanks to funding by Jonathan Poneman, great name, who then became full partner on the label. The pair realized that every successful movement in rock music had a regional basis, leading to them heavily pushing the cohesive brand identity that we're all familiar with. In 88, they released the first single by Mud Honey and Nirvana's debut single, Love Buzz. Good song. Good song. I think, just to interrupt, I think Sub Pop still does these summer concerts. I believe Mud Honey was doing a summer concert when I was in high school. So it was, I think it was about four or five years ago. And that was really cool. They're still alive, surprisingly. Mud Honey is the term for women where I come from. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you? Anyway. Getting back to the subject, so the producer for almost all of this music was Jack Andino. He's almost entirely responsible for grunge's audio aesthetic of raw and unpolished sound. Since most <laughs> early grunge albums on Sub Pop's label were recorded in a low-rent studio called Reciprocal. I don't know if it's still... It's still there. It's still over in Ballard. It's Neat. So is London Bridge, which also... Yeah, where is Reciprocal in Ballard? Isn't it near the locks? Yeah, kind of. It's on like a weed. So on like one of those weird X-shaped avenues. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so because they were all at the same studio, the same producer worked on every song, and the man just hated overproduction, leading to the sound that my parents hate so much. Jack Andino worked with Soundgarden, Nirvana, Green River, Screaming Trees, L7, The Gits, Hole, Seven Year Bitch, and Tad, and many others. If you, you want, you some forgot good music, he was also a, a guitarist himself for uh, Skin Yard. I didn't forget that. I didn't read <laughs> oh, that. <sorry. laughs> 
<laughs> you have you have delved farther into this rabbit hole than I have, my friend. And back to making Kyle look like an idiot, we go to Nirvana. And so Nirvana's Bleach was released by Sub Pop in 1989, and this carried heavily influences of bands like the Melvins, like um, Neil told us about, and Mud Honey, 80s funk, and 70s heavy metal. The album did all right and was a favorite among college radio stations, but lack of promotion hampered it a little bit, and the band wasn't really feeling sub pop anymore and was looking for a major record label to buy out their contract. So DGC Records signed them in 1990, and they released Nevermind in 91. Is this correct? Big deal. Huge. Every, I, and every every fact I just need to like fact check with Neil now. Is like, is it right? Uh, I'm sure he'll interrupt you if you get it wrong. I'm all right, not... or just wait for me to finish and then correct me at the end so I look like a bigger fool. No, I, I don't know all the dates or anything either. <laughs> all right, so they so bad. They released Nevermind in '91 with huge success. This album had a poppier, more melodic sound. It was as well more polished mixing, which the band disliked. 1993 saw the release of their In Utero album, which was recorded over a period of two weeks. And in March of 1994, Cobain was admitted to a drug rehab center. And after less than a week in rehab, he climbed over the wall of the rehab center and flew back to Seattle. I think this took place in Italy. The rehab I center? Think, yeah, I think he like overdosed in Italy and then he went into rehab and then he climbed a wall of a Italian rehab center and flew back to Seattle. Nice. That's quite the grunge story, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have a happy ending. However, like Kyle says, no happy ending. A week later, he was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head at his home in the Leshti neighborhood. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah. One thing that we that I probably talk about that I hopefully Neil can correct me if I'm wrong on, on this one. The first recording of Bleach, you have the Bleach album, but I believe they fucked up. They didn't keep track of when their first recording session was for Bleach. They put a date into the books and then didn't write any music whatsoever. So they went in, recorded Bleach. It was utter garbage. There's a few copies here and there. They're really hard to find. They scrapped it and rewrote it later. And then we get the Bleach that we hear today. Uh, yeah, I think I've I've heard that story too. I mean, they paid for the whole production, I believe, of Bleach for about six hundred dollars. So you know, it wasn't like huge, high budget, heavily carefully crafted productions that you get as most big rock stars get. Uh, I, I believe it was six hundred and six dollars and seventy one cents. Oh, I think oh, I remember damn. reading that. I go to Evergreen. We have a more accurate figure now. <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> if you're curious at all, these are kind of like landmarks now in Seattle, that, like especially the home that Kurt Cobain died in. You can still go over there and see it. And he's buried near here, too. <laughs> Contrary to Google Maps, this is just a warning for any adventurous travelers. <laughs> On Google Maps, they show his home as being part of the park that is next door that has like you know the famous like Kurt Cobain bench and everything it is actually private property now <laughs> which is, is not evident this is not a, an admission of guilt to any crime <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> thank you for that fact O'Neill. <laughs> watching out for people here. So uh, in addition to sub-pop and reciprocal, another large part of the grunge explosion was London Bridge Studios, which is still around, still recording. 
They recorded bands such as Mother Love Bone, Temple of the Dog, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, and Pearl Jam, so all the other bands that you're familiar with when you think of grunge, besides Nirvana. They're just the other label. They came from London Bridge. Well, they're not a label, but they're they're recording studio. studio. Yeah. (sighs) Do you know anything about Pearl Jam, Neil? Not that much. Damn. I just like threw <laughs> so, on a few sorry, things. Sorry, I've never been a Pearl Jam listener. I mean, I, I like them. I, 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 this is what I found. You either you either like Nirvana or you like Pearl Jam. I haven't met somebody who was really into both. I don't think Pearl Jam is grunge. I'm gonna I'm gonna come out and say it. It doesn't sound grunge. I've been in this debate so many times. There is a Venn diagram and. And it's like that bubble that kind of emerges, like that is kind of converging, but not quite. I mean, I think the reason a lot of people associate Pearl Jam with grunge is because a lot of people who went into Pearl Jam when it first got started were people who were in grunge bands before that, like, Mm -hmm. for example, Stone Gossard or names like that. And so you have people, basically grunge players, moving on, forming this Pearl Jam band. I agree. I think by the time they all got together... The kind of the the demands, the style of music that people wanted changed a little bit. Like they kind of wanted more polished up stuff. And I think Nevermind was very influential, kind of caused a lot of grunge people to move from that very rough bleach sound to kind of, you know, kind of what you hear on Nevermind. It's grunge, but it's like very polished. Yeah, yeah. And like pleasing to listen to. I think the argument can be made that you say that bleach is less polished. Right. No, I, I just let not. Yeah, this is yeah. less polished. I think the argument can be made that Mud Honey is even below that, because if you, I don't know what album it is. I I can't think of it for life of me right now. But you've listened to it. It's just very distortion heavy, right? Yes, and there's yeah. Very rough, very coarse, well, hard rock. Yeah, Nirvana made Bleach so angry sounding because that's what you did back then. That was. That mm-hmm. was the trend, and they did that because they felt like they needed to to make a good grunge album. And then Kurt Cobain apparently liked, although he wasn't happy with the polished mixing, he liked Nevermind a lot more because it was more melodic and focused on the music rather than just the pure angst. Also, the baby on the cover of Nevermind is really fucking hot now. He's... He is me. <laughs> <laughs> Not even going to comment. Not <laughs> Going back to what I said about Pearl Jam not really being grunge, in my opinion, some bands who are traditionally called grunge have actually denounced the grunge label, preferring instead the basic boring label of rock bands. Bands like Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, all the the big Mm -hmm. ones except for Nirvana, they didn't really like that label. Back to Pearl Jam. So they had their debut album, 10. It was kind of slow to sell at first, and then it just broke the glass ceiling of musical success, going on to become one of the highest-selling rock albums of all time. They came out with Versus also to a huge success. They've kind of changed their sound throughout the years, but the first two albums are some of the big grunge albums of the time. They're a lot heavier than their later stuff, I think, but they're not... I I still am not comfortable with calling those albums grunge. Hmm. With Pearl Jam, did any of the members go on to do other bands as well? Because with Nirvana, you have... Um, Isn't Pearl Jam still together? Uh, mm-hmm. Are they still together? Did they never diverged or try to do other music? I think if Pearl Jam breaks up, Eddie Vedder will immediately die. <laughs> I think that's all that's keeping him alive. <laughs> oh, <coughs> just the the idea of Pearl Jam. Because with Dave Grohl, he 
went on. He did a lot of different kinds of music after grunge, which is kind of interesting. It's actually kind of expected. Like the Foo Fighters. So, yeah, so you have the yeah. Foo Fighters. Well, Soundgarden came quite prolific after they broke up. I like Soundgarden a little bit more, as you can tell by the uh, amount that I have. It's okay. I, I agree with you. So Soundgarden, they released their debut album, Ultra Mega OK, through SST Records. They largely regretted it. They did not like it at all. They said the producer of the album didn't really understand what was going on in the Seattle music scene at the time. I haven't listened to it. It wasn't on Spotify, and that was as much effort as I was going to put into trying to Damn find it, it if they don't like it. Apparently, it's kind of like post-punk more I can than see that. grunge. They were just coming out of the punk era, so like, what else are you going to make? They're also really similar because punk and grunge are both anti-establishment counterculture music. So they have a lot of common threads, and it's pretty easy mm-hmm. to switch over. Yeah, punk definitely influenced grunge, but I mm-hmm. think grunge was... I think punk got to the point where they were trying too hard to be punk and grunge. Yeah, exactly. And that's why grunge just kind of became... Grunge was more natural, just more... They were very focused on authenticity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soundgarden then came out with Louder Than Love through A&M Records, which was a slow grinding kind of detuned sound reminiscent to something like black sabbath i really liked it actually more than their next album which is bad motor finger released in 1991 that had a more consistent and cerebral sound something like Nevermind, mm-hmm. where it's more cohesive and easier to listen to that album was largely eclipsed by Nevermind, but the success of nirvana actually helped draw attention to the seattle music scene as a whole which drew attention back to motorfinger so they were nice. kind of eclipsed and kind of helped out by it 94 they released super unknown which was their breakthrough album hugely popular still holds up to this day it's considered more creative and heavy than the previous album with darker themes. So as a whole, the band's sound was a combination of kind of like Led Zeppelin and the Butthole Surfers, which is something something they've they've alluded to. It's not just speculation Mm. or my wild fanboyism. So then after 15 years of working on this album, their last studio album entitled Down on the Upside was released in 1996, far less heavy and it was a major departure from their earlier grunge roots. I'm not a huge fan. In 97, the band announced, sadly, they'd be disbanding, partly because the last album took 15 years to work on. Yeah. It took 15 years to work on because there were so many, there was so much tension building in the band, kind of like uh, St. Anger. So then the band members went on to other projects. Chris Cornell joined band members of Rage Against the Machine to form Audio Slave, and then he later did a solo career. Huge fan of both. Mm-hmm. Audio Slave is amazing. Lead guitarist Kim Thiel joined a few other prominent musicians to form the No WTO combo during the famous WTO conference in Seattle. They played a single show for the conference, and then that was it. They that was were just, it? They were just a little quick project to shut down the WTO for some reason. I'm still not sure why people hated that so much. Drummer Matt Cameron eventually joined Pearl Jam, and he was actually inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Pearl Jam, so lucky him. I, I'm, I'm just blown away by that. Like, he, he quits one famous grunge band, goes into another. The band does even better than before, yeah. and then they get inducted, and he's one of the members that's inducted. That's crazy. I am not a fan of Pearl Jam. I know they're wildly talented, and I can I can see, I can listen to it, and I understand it, I can see it, but just not 
The music taste doesn't sit with me very well. Yeah, I agree. 2010, the band announced the reunion, but save for a few disappointing Guitar Hero tie-ins, no music. <laughs> <laughs> no new music was released until 2012 with their album King Animal. I haven't actually listened to that one, sadly. I should do that. In 2016, the band announced they had six songs written for another album, but Chris Cornell committed suicide in May of 2017, which I'm sure everybody knows. They might still release new music without Chris Cornell. No decisions have been made yet, but can you really replace Chris Cornell's voice? Yeah, exactly. I don't think so. Fuck Alice and James. <laughs> okay, so next we have Alice and James to talk about, but the problem is, like <clears throat> like Kyle said, fuck Alice and James. I'm not a fan whatsoever. I like Alice and James, but I got so tired of writing the script that I just stopped. I, I got kind of burnt out. I like Alice and James. Okay, so Alice Actually, and- the drummer Lane Staley <clears throat> went to my high school. Shout out to Liberty oh, High School. Do you know anything about Alice in Chains? Fucking shit. The, okay, so here, I got some Alice stuff. In Chains. Here, I got, I got you some stuff. I can't read that. <laughs> Is this, fuck it, we'll do it live. Okay, so Alice in Chains actually identifies as American rock, not grunge, which is interesting. It is another Seattle band, and they were formed in 1987. And so the band members, you have a guitar vocalist, Jerry Cantrell, and drummer, Sean Kinney. And they also have a bassist named Mike Starr. And I'm forgetting, oh, sorry, I'm forgetting Lane Stanley. And so he, they're associated with grunge music, and the band's sound incorporated heavy metal elements. And since its formation, Alice in Chains has put out five albums and three EPs, and a couple live albums and some compilations, things I've, like that. Sorry, I have a correction. Actually, Sean Kenny went to Liberty. Just get rid of that whole part. <laughs> <laughs> and so. The notes are all jumbled up. <laughs> Okay, so they rose to international fame uh, with the grunge movement, but like yeah. other bands, they denounced the grunge title. And so they got really popular in the early 1990s. They're right alongside Nirvana and Pearl Jam Soundgarden, just didn't have quite the same popularity until other bands started to... Basically, other bands started dying down, and then Alice in Chains got some more recognition. I think it's because everybody was confusing Alice in Chains with Alice in Krauss. So yeah, they definitely. Would, they would, Yeah, so they would look up her music accidentally and mm-hmm. then just be very disappointed to hear <laughs> to hear this sweet old woman I don't know if she's old but this sweet woman singing what's interesting though is all the bands talked about no longer can, are making music Alice in Chains still makes music and they are working on their sixth studio album set for release in early 2018 so in a couple weeks or months we should be finding some new Alice in Chains music oh boy I don't have high hopes I'm, I'm gonna be honest it's, I think it's gonna flop yeah, I never have high hopes for a, a band that's been around that long. No, because it's, 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 it's a dying effort to, to work on it. Yeah. So with the whole grunge movement, you also have style movement as well, which I think everyone can remember. I think the perfect example is to use Kurt Cobain in his style when during the height of Nirvana, you see him wearing like the fuzzy trapper hat with like clout glasses and then like wazoo dad shirts and just like, nail polish and things like that. So the clothing grunge musicians wore... Are, I wanted to talk about that. What? I wanted to talk about the Wazoo Dad <laughs> No, I'm doing it. You talked for... You did Soundgarden. I get this. Okay. You talked for so long. I get this, Kyle. I get this. It's mine. <laughs> it's my turn. Stop mocking me, assholes. So the clothing grunge musicians wore... Glass ceiling. <laughs> 
Stop it! I'm trying to talk. Okay. So the clothing style musicians wore are pretty mundane, and the same clothes that you would wear at home, but more distressed. I, want, I would add. So they give off the sense of authenticity, which is mirrored in the or mirrors the music. That's the idea behind grunge: is to be authentic, and like no commercialism, and it's pretty integral to the grunge genre. The look is things that you would find in thrift shops, and so since grunge was mostly in the Pacific Northwest, or the bands were in the Pacific Northwest especially Aberdeen, which is where Kurt Cobain's from, I believe, yes. and Seattle, they wore a lot of outdoor clothing, both masculine and feminine. So you have flannels, ripped jeans, oversized sweaters, ugly sweaters, Birkenstocks, hiking boots. Apparently thermal underwear as well, thermal which I thought under- was a weird Would you detail. wear it with the ripped jeans? Hey, there's How nothing wrong with these... thermal underwear. <laughs> wait, wait, is thermal underwear like the prelude to yoga pants? No, it's the zenith of clothing in general. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I believe if if they ever find the Ark of the Covenant and pull off that golden lid, and it'll be full of folded long long johns. And so, uh, these clothing elements, they made their way to the grunge look. The look was focused on anti-consumerism and anti-conformism. And there are actually pictures of Kurt Cobain, like I said, wearing this Wazoo Tri Delta dad shirt or dad sweatshirt. And so. Obviously, he's not like affiliated with UW or Wazoo, and he probably hates both. But I think that he, I think he recognized how uncool it was wearing a Wazoo Tri Delta Dad shirt, and the uncoolness wrapped back around to being cool again in this grunge sort of way. And so, what what are your thoughts on Kurt Cobain wearing a Wazoo Tri Delta Dad shirt? All I can wonder is how uh, Jeffrey Potaski's mom felt with Kurt Cobain wearing her sorority sweater. <laughs> she was a Tri Delta. This is true. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, man. Oh. And if anyone ever comes into the newsroom, like, just, hey, come in, come to the Daily and meet us and hang out. So in the back of the wall, written in huge black paint is, now he's gone and joined that stupid club, Kurt's mom, which is a direct quote from Kurt Cobain's mom. And so we have that back there. We painted it in the 90s. Little part of history. What club? I don't know what club it was. I think they're talking about the grunge band itself. And there's like disdain from Cobain's mom. The grunge club. The grungy boys. <laughs> the angsty, angsty tots. And it should be said, Sub Pop definitely pushed the style of grunge on their bands to create the grunge image for marketing. Yeah, which is ironic because the grunge music is about anti-consumerism. And yeah. The, yet you have Sub Pop commercializing this. I mean, the uh, I think it was the lead singer of Tad. Mm-hmm. Pavit like had the lead singer of Tad dress up like you know like a mountain man flannel jeans like what I normally wear. Yeah, if you're <laughs> if I want to meet Kyle, he is the, the child of grunge with a little more style. I dress like Rock Hudson. If Rock Hudson were ten days homeless. <laughs> If anyone goes to Sub Pop, there's there's an online store. You still get records, LPs, things like that. They still market and they still profit off of their 90s bands. And I was on there today just to look at the website. I check in once in a while. And if you go to the shopping section, all of their clothing is just ripoffs from the 90s. Overly mass produced. You still have the same logos and sweatshirts from the 90s. And obviously, Seattle kids eat that shit up so much. Yeah, and like I said... They kind of realized that if they were going to be successful, they needed to kind of start a new rock genre in mm-hmm. Seattle. They realized they could market grunge, mm-hmm. and so they they created the whole sound, the image, everything. Like, Sub Pop is pretty much responsible for grunge, especially 
the early years, I don't know, maybe Soundgarden and yeah. Alice in Chains would still have formed, but it wouldn't have been what it is today. Yeah, definitely. Insider tip, your local Goodwill actually, in general, has a very large stock of uh, wearable grunge clothes. <laughs> I think the Seattle aesthetic is just wearable grunge clothes. Let's be honest. We walk Th- around. That's the, that's the grunge aesthetic is just wearable Goodwill clothes. Please. <laughs> if you walk around campus. And some non-wearable okay, Goodwill let's just Let's just talk about how much our clothing style is influenced by this. Because you walk around. I'm a perfect example of this right now. I'm wearing a flannel and I'm wearing hiking boots. Kyle is wearing a flannel. He was wearing a can, like a heavy twill, whatever, jacket, things like that. You walk around, how many fucking people are wearing Birkenstocks with wool socks and ugly sweaters? Well, I kind of dressed like this today in honor of the Grunge podcast. Oh my, no, hold on, hold on. This is an outfit you've worn multiple times. Not with these shoes, girl. Grungy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Gray vans aren't grungy. It was a joke. <sighs> All right. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Bush did 9-11. <laughs> Bush did grunge. <laughs> Bush did something. Wait, pop. hold on. Who was the president? Clinton and a George H.W. Bush, right? George H.W., the grungiest president. <laughs> All right, that about wraps up for today. This has been Up Around with Christy McManigal. And Kyle Myholm. Thank you for joining us today, Neil Chakravarty. My pleasure. To hear more from the Soundbite Network, check us out at uwpodcast.com. We will also soon be on iTunes, Google Play, Android, Stitcher, TuneIn, all those fun platforms. Yeah, if you have any topics you want to hear from us, just email us at podcast at dailyudub.com. Goodbye. Wee. Bye, guys. Please keep those. Please keep those in. You sound like Butterfree. Did you know Peruvians have their own type of Chinese food? Or that Vietnamese food is heavily influenced by French cuisine? Have you ever wondered what other cultures' drunk food is like? Explore these topics and more right here on the Soundbite Network. My name is Dee Dee Madigan, and I'm the host of Home Plates, a podcast all about food. Catch up on the first season of Home Plates on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. New episodes air every Wednesday. For more like this and other great shows covering sports, science, relationships, and the arts, visit the Soundbites website, uwpodcast.com. That's uwpodcast.com.